0: Well, tonight we want to continue on the topic of prayer. One thing that we're doing, we're calling, of course, the entire series, The Divine Dialogue. But opening up some dialogue via social media about prayer as well. And um, so I've been fielding some questions via Facebook. And so I think there's a slide that's going to show up here in a moment. So let me encourage you. If you have any questions about specifically about prayer, then either to the GCC or to my personal uh, Facebook page, post these questions, and I'm going to be answering them. Some of, some of them privately, but most of them I'm going to be answering publicly uh, via this form. And some questions, for instance, that have that have come uh, come forward, and those of you that have already kind of you know, since some in. Thank you. It's a great dialogue to have. But here's one. I've been studying what it means to pray without ceasing and to pray in the Spirit at all times. Would love to hear what in the world that means. How do you interpret these scriptures and how are we to practically carry this out on the earth? How, how do I balance a conversation with God and with someone else at the same time? What a great question. And we're going to be talking more about that in a, in a session yet to come. But let me, just, uh, let me just briefly answer that, in that it's a matter of becoming what I call God-aware. It's just a matter of, in that moment, we don't have to drop to our knees, and, or we don't have to start talking in an unknown tongue in order to engage God in a given moment. I believe that we can walk in such a way in the Holy Spirit that we can pray without ceasing. How do we do that? Well, one, you always have thoughts going on, do you not? I mean, I hope so, all right? You know, that, that they, if they were to hook you up, there'd be something going on. there. And so there is, believe it or not, there is a dialogue going on in your head all the time. You're thinking, you're interacting with thoughts. And yet, it's in that place of your imagination. This is the place where God engages us anyway. We don't have God engage us with a theopony, with God just appearing or angelic visitation. We hear God in the realm of our what? Our spirit, our thoughts. And so, in that same way, we can engage God in continual conversation, if you wish. If we will just remain God aware in our orientation and you can do that, whether you're walking through the Costco, whether you see something on the news, it's a matter of why I need to jot that down and pray about that later. Why not right now? Why not just why not just have a dialogue with God in that very moment as somebody is drawn to your attention? That you pray for them. If you don't even engage them, you can pray for that individual in that moment. That's how we can literally pray without ceasing. And, no, and and the what you're doing on the outside may not ever change. And yet, you are in a divine dialogue. This is what I believe that that means. Some other great questions that came, but for the sake of time, I won't answer publicly tonight. But let me encourage you, let's engage in a forum via social media about this topic. Amen? Well, let's review for a moment. Two weeks ago we talked about the practice or three weeks, the practice of prayer. And you can go back, we're posting notes on the website for this. If you go out to UVersion, you'll also find the outline for these sermons. But the practice of prayer, the repeated exercise of an activity. And obviously, we practice in order to increase our what? Our competence doesn't matter what that is. And prayer is exactly the same thing in that the more that you do it, the more competent you will become in it. And then last week, we looked at overcoming some of the problems of prayer. The passage in Romans 8 that the Spirit, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for. And so we find right here that there are biblically stated problems that have to be divinely addressed so we diagnosed some problems last week and those overarching problems one we're not quite sure what we should be praying for two we aren't really sure we're being heard or number three we if 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 we are convinced we're heard and our prayers aren't answered then why bother and these all become pretty significant issues and we looked in first John 5 last week if you remember this That if you ask anything according to his what? Will. And we learned last week then that the parameters of asking are within God's will. And we looked at the analogy of a checking account. That you can continue to draw checks off of that account and not bounce them all over the place as long as there are funds in the account. God's will is like that bank account. And as long as we are writing checks, making requests, as long as God's will is evident in that account, guess what? Those prayers are answered. That's how how we interpret that passage. And then the posture or the position with him, which is exactly what we're going to be looking at tonight. And tonight we are indeed looking at what I'll call the posture of prayer. The posture of prayer. You know, there's, there's um, around the country right now, there are a number of prayer movements and men and women that have led those prayer movements. And you can go into certain settings now and you find some people and they, they, they've developed some mannerisms when they pray. You know, you can go into certain, certain church settings or certain church cultures and you'll find certain mannerisms As to how people approach their worship. You can go into certain churches and people approach their worship very stoically. You have other churches that they perhaps express their worship just a little bit more overtly. They may raise their hands or something. Then you have the other end of that spectrum. Where you better step back because people are going to be in a dead run. And they'll take you down if you're not careful. You have to be very environmentally aware as to what's happening in that moment. And it doesn't necessarily make one better than the other. They're just different depending on what that expression is. It's the same thing with the postures of prayer. But it's funny that many times in sort of in the inter- one, of the, one of the intercessory movements in our country, you see folk when they pray and they rock, have you, have you ever seen this? They, they kind of rock back and forth a little bit. Or when they sit in a chair, they, they rock back and forth. And, and it, it looks like that this is a sign of the anointing. All right? And so people have sort of adopted this as, well, this is what prayer must look like. Or this is what it must look like when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. But someone asked the individual where which this entire sort of school or camp came from, why do you rock when you pray? He said, well, because my back hurts and I have to shift around or, or, or it really affects my lower back. And so what's become now an entire movement, hundreds of thousands of people that think this is what it looks like when you pray was originated from one guy just trying to get comfortable when he sits. But that's not the posture that I'm talking about tonight. I'm talking about the posture of the position by which we pray. Where are we coming from? Do I belong here? Many, many, many years ago, my wife and I partially put groceries on the table as professional musicians, and we got engaged to play all kinds of different events and gigs, so to speak. If you're a musician, you know, it's not a performance, it's a gig, all right? Somewhere I think there's some categorizations. If you're really good, it's a performance, all right? If you're, if you're not real good, it's just a gig, And so we would play weddings, and we would play for parties, and we would play at restaurants. Pretty much anybody that would write us a check over $5, we would go perform, especially if they were feeding the musicians that night. And so my wife and I got booked somehow for this outdoor engagement. And we had done outdoor weddings before, and we had done some other outdoor venues, some festivals and what have you. And so we didn't think a whole lot of it, but we got there and as we rolled up, we could smell the barbecue. What they What's known in North Carolina as a pig picking, where they just take large carcasses of hog and cook them and people reach in and grab big chunks full of the holy hog and they eat. It's, 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 it's kind of like... A southern luau is the best way I know how to describe it, except people don't use complete sentences. But so we show up for this engagement and, you know, my wife's a flute player and I happen to play classical guitar, so our, our repertoire lean more toward the 17th and 18th century repertoire. And so we're setting up here and we're looking at the jeans and the bib overalls and You know, and we're thinking, this is going to be interesting. I don't know that we really have a set list for a gig like this. And we set up, and finally some some of the organizers came over, and they said, is the rest of the band coming? Because they were expecting a bluegrass band. You know, like banjos and not guitar, but guitars. And so somehow, I cannot begin to tell you how horribly awkward that evening was because we really did not have anything that they truly wanted and certainly not what they were paying for. But how many of you have ever been in a situation where you realize they don't want me here? Now I'm not talking about your marriage so let's just not go there. But if you've ever been in a situation where it was truly I don't really fit here or you, you didn't get the message that this was a black tie event and you came dressed down. I mean, you, you know that, that sort of, that little bit of, mm, the stuff of nightmares of introverts and discomfort and insecurity for everyone else. And, you know, these dreams that we have of just being in the wrong place. I'm, I'm the only one here that feels that. Right. But the first problem, am I praying in concert with his will? Second problem, which we stated, do I even belong here? What right do I have to be here? Let me make this statement. The primary attack of the devil. This is it right here. I'm just going to just, just separate all the other stuff. The primary attack of the devil against the redeemed is one of their standing their righteousness both in and with Christ. Let me say that again. The primary attack of the devil. Now, I'm not saying that there are not all kinds of other attacks. Of course there are. But I'm talking about if we could just move all of the secondary stuff and just bring the nukes out from the very beginning. Forget the airplanes and the soldiers and the ground. Let's just bring the big guns out. This is it right here. It is against the redeemed. They're standing their righteousness both in Christ, what he's done, and then with Christ. By what right are you here? And this attack extends to most every aspect of our lives, spiritually and emotionally. See, not knowing we're okay in a given situation First of all, it leads to insecurity, does it not? I mean, we're showing up for a bluegrass gig playing chamber music from the 18th century. I mean, that will make one a little bit insecure, to say the least. But then, a wrong inwardness and self-awareness. Because you begin to realize, hmm, I, I, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure I really belong here. Did, did, am, I, am I supposed to be here right now? It's kind of like stepping into the wrong meeting or wandering up to a conversation and all of a sudden people stop talking or their voices change and you realize, ah, this is not for me. But it also leads to condemnation. Paul in Romans chapter 7 spends the vast majority of the chapter talking about his condition, talking about all of those things that he shouldn't be doing but he does anyway and then vice versa and this is not some novice believer stumbling into the faith this is the author and the architect of most of the new testament the book of romans is his his magnum opus if you wish talking about how he's still struggling in himself aren't you glad the writers in scripture were honest Boy, that's helpful for me. But then coming out of this missive in Romans 7, we roll into into chapter 8, and this is what he writes, therefore, when you see a therefore in Scripture, you always have to find out what it's there for. So there was something leading up to it that we have this conjunction. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sin nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sin nature. But according to the spirit. Condemnation. Uniquely designed to draw us away. From the very person. The very source by which. Our health and our healing is supposed to come. Both condemnation and conviction. Often point. To some infraction. Some point that's irrefutable yeah i did that the holy spirit being that agent if you wish that points out sin in our life and it doesn't feel good but you see whereas conviction draws us to god condemnation pushes us away from god it says god doesn't want any part of that or you go away You see, conviction draws us toward the cross, a place where there is forgiveness. Condemnation says it's no need for you to go there because there's nothing else for you there. Important that we understand the difference in these two things. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We have to deal with a condemnation issue. It's been dealt with. But then third is an issue of self-righteousness. Because if we cannot apprehend his righteousness by faith, we're really left with just two responses. One, we just quit trying. It's like, I'm done. I'm checked out. Forget it. Sin. Here I come. Take me. And there are some folk that get to that place. They just tire of trying. Do they not? It's what we many times we loosely call a backslidden believer. Is he really saved? Let's not even go there. But then if we don't just quit trying, then we go to the other end of the extreme and we try to get it on our own of what the Bible calls self-righteousness. Certainly I can deal with this condemnation by just, just getting it right. Just, just doing better. But Philippians 3.9 says this, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You know, there's a type of righteousness that does come by keeping the law. The only problem is we are by nature, not law keepers. We are law breakers by nature. And so I don't know about you, but I don't want to live and die... By trying to keep the law, by trying to, quote, be good. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he, and he said, good teacher. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, there is, why do you call me good? There is no good, but what? But God, my goodness. And so we have to understand what self-righteousness, the trap that is intended to be for us. What am I talking about? Doctrinally, it's called positional righteousness. A posture of being right with God. And there are two parts of this, and both both are works of grace. The first, justification. Now, you may have heard this in some Sunday school you were in, and justification simply means just as if you never sinned. All right? Bad definition. Because it limits the atoning work of Christ if we reduce it to that. But justification, we find in Romans, the fifth chapter, verses 18 and 19. As a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made sinners righteous. Romans 3.22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This justification, which is a one-time, it's a legal transaction, whereby which the reality of John, when Jesus said, you are clean, you're already clean, because of the word I have spoken to you done paid in full you're right but there's a second aspect of this called sanctification the first is complete a legal transaction but the second it's ongoing it is a becoming something that we currently are not but we are moving toward romans 8 verses 12 through 14 paul again brothers we have an obligation but it's not to the sin nature to live according to it For if you live according to the sin nature, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Sanctification works in two parts, the already and the not quite yet. One has already been accomplished through the completed work of Christ, the other you will continue to participate with and participate in as long as you are in these bodies. You never, quote, get there where sanctification is concerned. It's part of our clothing, if you wish. Isaiah 61, chapter 10 says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of, of righteousness God's righteousness covers our what our nakedness and it's only the righteousness of God that will fully cover the nakedness of sin it's the only garment that is complete enough heavy enough all-encompassing enough to cover the nakedness of sin but it's not only our clothing this righteousness also becomes our armor as well. Ephesians chapter 6, and speaking of the weapons of our warfare, you know this passage, I hope. But in verse 14, it says, to stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist and the breastplate of what? Righteousness, righteousness in place. You see, a good bulletproof vest or armor it's made of multiple layers. It's not just one thing, it's not just one material. I was reading about a new material that's getting ready to replace Kevlar in the years to come. Much lighter, much thinner. They can, they can literally do nano nano layers. And they put the, and, and they they put it together. It's going to be revolutionary. But it's multiple layers of something. And I, I first heard Jim LaFoon put this forth in our prophetic conference last April. But if you wish, sanctification is like the outer thin layer of the armor and justification is the layer behind that armor. So in other words, there are going to be times that the attacks of the enemy will come that will pierce our sanctification, that outer layer. Bulletproof vests many times, they just have literally cloth or some type of relatively thin covering which is never designed to stop a bullet. It's basically cosmetic, if you wish. But it's what behind it, it's what's behind it that really does, if you wish, the stopping. That's what justification does. See, there are times that sin will get through your sanctification. I want you to hear this. It doesn't mean we stop trying. It doesn't mean that we don't rely on that part of the armor. But many times we need to understand that there are times that we will get tempted. We will move into areas that will pierce our sanctification. But hallelujah, there is something thicker behind that. Not just our own behavior. Not just our own will to do the right thing. But God's justification has the stopping power to not allow... That to pierce our hearts. Romans 6. Verses 11 through 13. Count yourselves dead to sin. But alive to God in Christ. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. This is the sanctification. But then justification. The second place of that armor. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all of this, you say, Pastor, what in the world does this have to do with prayer? Absolutely everything. As a matter of fact, this may be the most important section on prayer that we get to. Not about the technique of prayer. Not about the practice of prayer. But right here, Is the position by which we can come to God and make our requests known. This is it. And let me just say to you, I really believe this is the ground by which any and everything we will ever do in God, if it's not built on this place, like the song says, everything else is sinking sand. I see men and women build on a whole lot of things and pretty good things. Mission, vision, behavior. Wonderful. Great. Keep doing it. But every one of us have to come back to, why am I here and what sustains me? James chapter 1. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that man shouldn't think he'll receive anything from the Lord. How many of you have ever prayed and had a doubt or two? Come on. Don't lie, you're in church. (laughs) We all have doubts. And most of the time, the doubt is not that God can, it's whether or not am I somehow postured right to get God's attention, to get God's favor. To get God, most of the time, our accusation is not against God because the enemy will turn around and say, you see, you didn't pray right. Not only did you not pray right, you're not holy enough to pray that prayer. And the reason that these men and women out there, the reason that they see miracle signs and wonders around their life, they're holier than you are. They pray more. They give more. And all of us have heard it get honest with you get honest with yourself get honest with me get honest with god that if i were just a little bit more whatever fill in the blank then somehow these prayers would get answered let me define doubt for you it's a product of misdirected prayer and by misdirected prayer let me just define it of not knowing or praying his will is that fair based on what we talked about last week, plus an insecure position from which we ask. I believe that these two things is what produces doubt in the hearts of the praying believer right here. It's am I praying as will first of all, and secondly, from what position am I at making my request known? And when you've got these two things working together, the net result is doubt that will try to invade our thinking and our hearts. Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but hears the prayer of the righteous. We know this. James chapter 5, it goes on. Talks about prayer. Any of you in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs. Sick, he should call the elders of the church and have them pray. Pray. And it says the prayer offered in faith will. That's what Scripture says. It will make the sick person well. Now, this is a problem which we'll talk about in another session. I've prayed over a lot of sick people that didn't get well. As an elder, in faith, what am I going to do with that? I've prayed for sick people that not only didn't get well, they passed on and went to be with God. And I could, and you know, you walk away from an encounter like that, and that's where the enemy is right there saying, you didn't do it right. But it doesn't negate what this Bible says. Are you with me? For many years, I served with Pastor Jim LaFoon as his assistant pastor. And he and I would go to the hospital to do visitations. And this is not a, this is, prophets are a little bit twisted this way. But we're always kind of looking ahead. God, what are you doing in this situation? Do you intend to heal this person or do you intend to take this person as a result of this sickness? And so we'll be riding down in the elevator and he'll look at me and I will look at him and it was, it was, it was kind of like, you know, the Roman games, like, you know I mean, and it is not that we were trying to exercise anything in this situation. We were trying to kind of assess what our revelation was. But you know what? It never mattered what we thought our revelation was. We continued to pray for healing for that individual until which time we presided over their funeral. Because that's what the Word says. It says the Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Verse 16, James 5. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you might be healed. The prayer of a what? Righteous man is powerful and effectively. And then he goes on, he talks about Elijah, a man just like us, he prayed earnestly. But again, notice the connection here, righteousness. Pray for one another, confess your sins one to the other. Why? Because the prayers of a what? Righteous man availeth much. That word is the word eho ener- which means where we get our word energetic from powerful effective fervent prayer the fervent prayer of a righteous man and i'm fascinated by that word fervent because the word fervent doesn't just mean that you know we we walk holes in the carpet it doesn't just mean that we raise our voices or raise our hands or get in some kind of posture before god that's all external And I'm not saying that your emotions can't chase some of that, but true fervency has to come from a place that extends well beyond human emotion. Fervency. Let me define fervency for you. It is the competence of practice and the confidence of condition yields fervor. The competence of practice. I've done this. I know what the Word says about this. And I'm going to pray this scripture. There's a competency. And then the confidence of condition. I know from which position, which platform, what my position is before God. Let me tell you, you marry competence and marry confidence, you'll get fervor. Man, I can turn this thing loose. Because I know what the will of God is in this situation. And I know who I am in Christ. Let me just tell you, you put those two things together, we get dangerous fast. We begin to see things, begin to break loose that we've never seen before. Because we know this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. It says, he's raised him from the dead and seated him where? Where is he now? At his right hand. It's where he is and it's what he does. Romans 8. That he is making what? Intercession for us at the right hand of God. But I want you to consider just for a moment your placement in all of this as well. Colossians 3, one, You have been raised with Christ. Now, of course, this is speaking about a resurrection. This is what this scripture is about. But could I submit to you, just for the sake of putting a period on this message tonight, that even as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession, because he has every right as a perfect son to sit there, could I submit to you tonight that you've been raised with Christ to sit with him in the same place? Making intercession with the Father because of what Christ has done for you as it involves righteousness. You have the same rights and privilege to be right there sitting with Daddy as Jesus himself. Not because of anything that you could ever hope to do or have done. But because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Let me just tell you. This is Christianity one-on-one. I mean, it doesn't get any more basic than this. God so loved, he gave I me. Mean, that might be a little bit more basic, but let me just tell you. On the basis by which we do everything else throughout our, our entire Christian career, this is what it has to stem from right here is a deep, just gut-wrenching reality of the righteousness of God that now courses through you. That you are right in Him and you are right to be with Him. It works together. That in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God, how? With freedom and confidence. That's what the Word says. And dear saints, this is the posture of prayer. This is the position of prayer. And that's not anything that we assume. Certainly nothing that we ever presume. Could I submit to you that this, and this has to come by revelation. Teaching helps, yes. This word helps, yes. But somewhere this has to come where God comes and kind of, Opens a hole on the inside of you. And most of the time, the hole that he opens is one of abject failure on your part. I wish I could tell you there were an easier way. A non-invasive method where he could just come and you could just sniff the the medicine. Oh, I got it. No, 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 no. We get torn open through failure through the reality of our own sin and our own helplessness to do anything about it, and then God says, now I can begin to explain my righteousness to you. Now that you've come to the absolute end of anything in yourself whereby which you think you can approach a perfect God, now some revelation's gonna begin to come. And it's from that place. Why do we think we, we look through our scripture. Why do we think the great quote, heroes of the faith, became heroes of the faith? Because they started out as complete screw-ups. Paul, his own, t- his own resume, you know who I was. A Jew's Jew persecuting the church student of Gamal. I mean, I was the man and I was all that in a bag of chips. But now, because... Christ had mercy on me. But saints, this isn't just some passage whereby which we, quote, get saved and we write a a date down in a Bible that somebody gave us at church. This is the air that we have to breathe every day every day. This is what informs our life. This is what our worship stems from. Oh, I don't have anything to worship God for today. Really? You've got to be joking me. You've got to be kidding because your little temporal thing is not getting touched as quickly as you want it touched. But the mere fact that you are not going to hell, the mere fact that you're not only not going to hell, but God has imputed his righteousness to you. And you can't get out of your seat and get your hands above your head. Let me just tell you, it's a lack of revelation. And I believe for most believers, I really don't believe it's a lack of appreciation. Because I think when that revelation hits us, I think we're so overwhelmed by it. We can't help but worship. We can't stop. And you see, this sets us apart from the angels. The angels don't have this righteousness. As a result, they don't have the same worship you and I have because they're not coming from the same place of redemption. Do you realize that the voice of a redeemed believer worshiping God in the revelation of his His perfection and righteousness, do you realize that voice soars above all else in heaven? Angels sing pretty good. It's a pretty decent choir. But when a believer comes to this reality, you're the voice, baby. It gets way on top. Let me tell you, it happens in worship, but it happens in prayer as well. Hear me. And if we're praying from any platform other than this one, let me just encourage you. Step off, step down, get off the train now. And come and ask God for the revelation of that which I'm sharing with you tonight. Amen? Amen. Pray with me.